You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. But the flesh is weak. I know I need to pray more. Like I've heard three sermons, I need to do this more. The spirit in me is willing, I wanna do this. But the flesh is weak. Amen. <laughs> but the flesh is weak. We're gonna to go to the, one of the most painful passages in scripture today. And we're doing that with a purpose. Because I believe that Jesus has some more things to say to us on prayer before we leave this place. Uh, he's gonna teach us three quick lessons on prayer. He's gonna call us to watch and to look and to see more about prayer that we need for our lives before we leave this place. Because indeed, the flesh is weak. In God's word, we have Mark chapter 14. Let's take a look at that text together. We're gonna begin in verse 32, and we're gonna go to a place called Gethsemane. And we're gonna see one of the most amazing prayers that was ever prayed, and we're gonna see an example of how to pray, and we're gonna watch for the reason to pray, and then we're gonna see a warning into prayer. This is where we're going today. Jesus is going to be our teacher. Verse 32 says this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Let me set some context for you. We are about a few hours away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's about to, at the end of this account, he's about to be arrested. These are some of his last words given uh, aside from bondage. He's about to be arrested. The Last Supper, which we'll celebrate at the end of our service, a remembrance of the work of Christ, the Last Supper has just occurred a couple hours before that. And Jesus has sat down before the boys, and he has said that they will all deny him. And they have declared their undying love. They said, no, that's not possible. Peter is adamant. I will never deny you. I will never deny you. And Jesus says, no, all of you will deny me. Even you, Peter, especially you, Peter. Judas, in this moment, takes the opportunity to slip away and gather the guards and gather the soldiers that will eventually capture Jesus. And so Jesus, with the 11 that are left, walks out from where they are having the Last Supper, and he walks to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, the garden still is there in Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount. Down through the Kidron Valley, you would come up to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, so Jesus takes the 11 boys with them that are left, and they walk to this hillside grove. Gethsemane just means olive press, the squeezing out of olives. It's located on the Mount of Olives. And then we see at the, the entrance of the garden, verse 32, he tells eight of his disciples, doing the math, to sit down. He's going off to pray. Sit here while I pray, he says. Then verse 33, Jesus takes Peter and the brothers, James and John, with them, and they go into the garden. By the way, this is the inner circle of Jesus. These are his closest friends on this earth. Peter, James, and John saw amazing things. They were there for the transfiguration of Jesus when the glory of God shone through him, and they were there when he raised Jairus' daughter, the dead 12-year-old girl brought back to life. This is his inner circle. These are his closest 
friends. They've seen sides of Jesus that other people have never seen, but they have never, ever seen this side of Jesus. This verse and the next verse shows us a side of Jesus that we have never seen before. The text tells us that he is greatly distressed, meaning he was excessively affected by emotion. It tells us that he was troubled. He was undergoing extreme mental and spiritual anguish and distress. They can see this is a different Jesus. They have never seen Jesus like this before. He's very upset. He's emotionally shattered. They can see it on him. And then verse 34, he flat out tells them. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Very sorrowful, consuming all-encompassing sadness and sorrow. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm so overwhelmed with pain and sadness, I think I'm going to die. Listen to that again. I'm so overwhelmed with pain and sadness, I think I'm going to die. You ever been in a place like that? Do you think that this is a significant moment in Jesus' life? Do you think that this is a moment that you and I need to pay attention to? Well, Jesus thinks so. Look at the end of verse 34. What does Jesus say next? Remain here and watch. Again, he's just saying this to Peter, James, and John. The inner circle that he's brought with him. But through God's word... He's brought us as well. What he's saying is this. I want you to be a part of this. I want you to see this. I want you to remember this. I want you to be here while I go through what I'm about to go through. Remain here and watch. Stay right here. Eyes open. Be alert. You know, there are 25 recorded prayers of Jesus in the New Testament. And, and this is one of the ones that we have in front of us. And it's one of the most significant, I think. It may just change your life right even here this morning. Remain here and watch. Stay right here and be alert. Watch me. All eyes on Jesus in the olive press. Let me pray again. Would you bow with me? God taking a, a painful passage of scripture and looking at it and then rightly carrying the weight of it to understand more deeply. For these things, we need you to work in our hearts. Please help us to see. Please help us to watch. Please help us to stay here and understand what Jesus is trying to tell us what Jesus models for us. Please, Lord, lead us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first thing I want you to see, verse 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Mark tells us that Jesus plants the three boys and then he moves along a little further. Luke's gospel tells us that it's actually a stone's throw. In fact, we, get, we use that term a lot in English, a stone's throw. It actually comes from Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel gave us that expression, stone's throw. Now, how far away is a stone's throw? It's not very far, is it? So I thought, how can I communicate how far that is away to kind of bring you into the text? And I thought, I know, I'll bring a stone and I'll throw it. And then I thought, that's probably not a good idea. So I thought I'd bring a marshmallow. And I'd throw that because it's about the same weight. So I'm going to literally throw this marshmallow, and you're going to see how far it is, okay? So here it goes. Everyone paint. It's, it's a marshmallow. Here it comes, this direction. Okay. All right. And, and, and if you get tired, you can eat that, if that helps you. <laughs> is that far? Is that far away? If I'm here crying out in agony with loud cries, as First Peter tells of the account, are you going to hear me? Yes, you're going to hear me. I read this story when I was younger, and even in, in adulthood, I'm thinking he's miles away. I think he plants them and he goes way off and he's all by himself and he never sees anything like this and they never see him and they don't understand what's going on. No, he's right there. Luke's gospel, the, the other gospel, uh, tells us that Jesus hits his knees and cries out. Mark's at, Mark adds more to this. Mark tells us that he hits his knees and then, what does it say? He fell on the ground. They've never seen him like this before. He fell on the ground. He can't even stand. Now, I'm a visual guy, and when I study God's word and narratives, I like to look up pictures of what that looked like or how artists have interpreted that. And so here's one picture of Gethsemane. Here's Jesus looking, I would think, rather composed on his knees in the garden, looking up as the light shines upon his face. That's stained glass. Here's another one, a little bit similar. That's, I guess that's cubism or something. I'm an art connoisseur. <laughs> And here he is again, he's on his knees, right? That's not, how Mark, that's not how Mark's gospel's giving it to us. Mark's gospel gives it to us like this, for, third picture. The light's still on him, though. I like this fourth picture. That's what's going on. They've never seen him like this before in this pain, and in this extreme emotional distraught. I ask you the question, student of God's word, what does Jesus do? He prays. And this is the first thing that we're called to watch. Remain here and watch what I do, says Jesus. And this is the first thing we need to watch. We need to watch the example for us to pray. First point in our outline today. Watch the example for us to pray. I think we can all agree that nothing pushes prayer more to the forefront of our lives like pain does. I'm willing to bet that there has, there has never been a stronger season of prayer in your life that would not correlate with great pain in your life. Some of you, I know, are going through pain right now. And some of you, I know, are praying like you have never prayed before. Isn't it true that when we're most desperate, we become most passionate in our prayers? When the hour is the darkest, when the trial is the most painful, when the way seems most helpful, we begin to pour on our prayers. Now, Jesus is in pain right now, pain that you and I will never understand. He is the perfect example for us, though, in the middle of extreme pain. Jesus sat the boys and said, remain here and watching. So I ask you, are you watching this? Are, are you watching? 
how Jesus prays in pain as the perfect example. What I want to do is I want to walk through how he breaks up his prayer. I want you to see four characteristics of this prayer that will teach us how we are to pray at all times and especially how we are to pray when we're facing great pain in our lives. Jesus begins his prayer, we'll put that up on a chart. He begins his prayer by calling out, Abba, Father. And I think we can agree that this is not some calm utterance of a phrase. This is a cry from the heart. Abba, Father. Jesus begins his prayer with extreme devotion. Jesus isn't calling out to God based upon some unseen force. He's not saying, I know you can do things. He's not calmly coming into the presence of God. He's, car- he's crying out based on personal relationship. He's calling to his father as if he's intimate with his father because he is. He doesn't start with titles. He starts with relationship, with the person. God is not some abstract force, some unmoved mover. God is a person. And what's more, he's not unconcerned with my life. He cares for me. He loves me. He's a father to me, and he's the best one. A father who protects, a father who loves, a father who provides, a father who holds my hand when I don't know what to do. This is how Jesus begins, with extreme devotion. Look at the next thing he says. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. This is a a testament to the power of God. Buried in that phrase is the word power. This is is extreme ascription. Ascription is describing God for who he actually has revealed himself to be. Jesus is declaring that God, you could do anything. All things are possible for you. Nothing is too hard for you. There is nothing too difficult for you, God. He recognizes this when he calls out to him. When I'm about to ask you, God, it's not impossible. He moves from there, all things are possible for you, to the third thing, which is this. Remove this cup from me. He moves from devotion to ascription and now to petition. Extreme petition. Take this cup from me. He asks for it to be moved. Move the anguish, move the sorrow, move the pain, move the distress, move the trouble away from me. Take it. All things are possible for you. Take it. You can take it. Take it. Listen, point of application today. If Jesus asks like this in prayer, so can you. Whatever trouble, trial, difficulty you're facing, it's okay to pray this way. I don't want to face this anymore. I don't want this trial anymore. I don't want the sickness anymore. I don't want the heartache. Take it away. Fix it. Make it right, God. If Jesus asked God to remove his suffering, I can ask him too. So here's what Jesus has done so far. Extreme devotion. He's called out to his father. Extreme ascription. He said anything is possible for you. Extreme petition. Now I'm giving you the impossible. Take it away. And you and I, as we read the Gospels, we know the answer to the story. The cup was not taken away. 
I want you to see this. God the Father answers the prayer request of God the Son with no. I won't take it from you. God the Father says to God the Son, no. How do you pray in suffering and pain? Now, I think one, two, and three are pretty easy. I think we can call it to God as our Father. I think we can declare him for who he is, maybe read a psalm. I think we can ask him for the things that hurt us. But the model that Jesus gives doesn't end there. When he gets the no, when he understands the direction it's going, he doesn't end there. And Jesus says, are you watching? Are you watching what I'm doing? Are you watching? Here's the last thing he says. In his moment of greatest obedience, crying alone on his face, Jesus says these words, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's extreme submission. Devotion, ascription, petition, submission. In the middle, how do you pray in the middle of pain? As the Father says no, as God says no, how do you pray? This right here is how you pray. This is faith on display in the midst of prayer. This is prayer when the flesh is weak. The ability to request boldly another direction than the one I'm going on. But ultimately submitting to God's will, whatever that may involve. That's faith in pain. That's what Jesus models for us this morning. God, I want your plan for my life. I ask for my plan but I submit to your plan. Some of you are living lives right now that is very, very, very far from the plan that you had originally intended. Just looking at some of your faces. Some of you did not want the life you're in right now. It's far from your plan. Faith in the middle of pain, though, says, not what I want, what you want. I trust you, God, for the greater good I may never see and may never understand. Why the sickness? Why the pain? Why the loss? Why the confusion? Why the hurt? Why the death? I trust you, God, for the greater good that I may never see and may never understand. This is what Jesus teaches as he prays in pain. And nothing pushes pain and prayer to the forefront more like pain does in our lives. And in the greatest pain that anyone has ever endured, Jesus models for us what it should look like. Devotion to his Father who loves him. A declaration of the limitless power of who God is. A recognition, an understanding of who God is. A bold ask, as a father would ask, as a child would ask a good father. But then a submission, even when the answer is no. Now you and I will face in this life uh, no greater pain than loss through death. Uh, there's nothing greater than that. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that the greatest points of grief in your life are not about losing the stuff in this world that you can buy again at the dollar store but about losing the people that are absolutely irreplaceable, the father, the mother, the sister, the brother, the grandparent, the friend, 
the child. What you need to understand right now, though, is that this is not the reason why Jesus is in pain. His pain mirrors ours, but this is not the reason why Jesus is in pain. Jesus is not in pain because he's, he's about to die. That's, he's not afraid of his death. Many martyrs would come in the church that would follow who would bear their, and face their death much more boldly than Jesus is seemingly facing his death right now. And the answer is, is because Jesus is not just facing his death. He's facing something far greater. He's facing something far worse than you or I will ever, ever have to face because Jesus faced it. I want you to see this next, and Jesus calls to us and says, are you watching me? Are you watching? I show you first, watch how you pray in pain. Watch the example I give to you. Watch how you pray. But I want you to see this secondly. The second point in our outline is this. Watch the great reason. Watch the reason for us to pray. You'll notice in your outline that these are the same verses, again, 35 and 36. But this time, I want you to point, I want to point us to why Jesus is so shattered, why Jesus is so upset. And again, I'll say this, this is, this is really the main point, the, the main heart behind the message. Uh, without overstating it, what you're about to watch is the single greatest motivating factor for prayer in your life ever. To find this, though, we need to look and understand two particular words in the text. The first word is the hour, and the second word is the cup. Look again at the text. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that. What's the, what's, the, what's the heart of Jesus? What's he so upset about? He's praying that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the hour and the cup that's so upsetting to Jesus. These words are synonymous with what Jesus is about to face upon the cross in just a few hours. Obviously, Jesus doesn't have a real cup in his hand. His language is figurative, and it's also fulfillment language. Specifically, the cup refers to the suffering that the Messiah would have to endure on behalf of the people. And the hour refers to the moment when the Messiah would have to endure it. So the cup is the content of the suffering, and the hour is the event when the suffering would occur. So understand this. Jesus isn't praying that he be saved from death. He's praying that the hour and the cup be removed from him if possible. The cup and the hour are the things that are causing Jesus such incredible emotional pain. It's causing him to say, I'm so overwhelmed with pain and sadness. It feels like I'm going to die. But what are they? Again, I told you his language is figurative, but it's also fulfillment language. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word cup refers to the wrath of God, the anger of God against the sins of man. We read this in Isaiah 51. O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. It's the symbol of, of, of God's anger against the sin of man. The cup also takes on another image of, of community. When you and I share a cup of something, we're in part of community together. And in fact, in just the end of our service, we're going to take part in the cup, and we're going to embrace as a community the Lord Jesus' sacrifice for us. As a cup, we identify a common ground. So when Jesus picks up the cup, what's the commonality that he's picking up? What's Jesus identifying for, with? What's Jesus associating himself to? Well, to us. 
into our sin. Jesus has already told the disciples that this cup was coming. In Mark chapter 10, just earlier on, he said this, for even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This verse points us back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 53, which says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has placed in the cup the sins of us all. What Jesus is facing right now is the cup of the wrath of God against the sins of the world. And he's holding in his hand. I'm so overwhelmed with pain and sadness, it feels like I'm going to die. Why? because he's about to be crushed for our sins. He's about to give his life as a ransom for us. He's about to be pierced for our transgressions. He's about to face the wrath of God. This is the pain that Jesus is praying through. Do you see what's going on here? Now here, though, I'm losing some of you because some of us don't like the idea of a God who has wrath, of a God who has anger. But what you need to understand is that love, and we're very comfortable with God being a loving God, not so comfortable with God being an angry God, What we need to understand, even in human terms, is that love always has to have anger with it. What? Put it this way. Let's say you have a six-year-old. Six-year-old walks in and says, you won't believe what happened. I was on the playground, and, and, and the teacher came up and shoved me to the ground. How would you respond? Oh, no big deal. No, you know how you would respond. There would be an anger that would rise up in you. Because you love the child so much, when you see someone hurting or abusing or suffering being placed upon someone you love, there's a righteous anger that riles up against in, in you. How dare you do that to someone I love? How can you do this? Understand this, the more that you love someone, the more angry that you can get. The same is true of God. It's especially true of God the one who perfectly loves us. From the very beginning of creation, God has longed to be with his people in relationship with love, to share his love with them. In fact, in the creation account, we can read of God and man walking together in a garden. But then the lies come in. The enemy casts doubt on the character of God. God doesn't really love you. He wouldn't withhold this from you. If God really loved you, he would give you what you really wanted. If God really loved you, he would do what's best for you. Lies. Lies we believe today, too. God's holding out on me. God must not care for me. God must not listen to me. Lies that we believed at the beginning that drove sin into our heart. Sin that hurts us. Sin that causes us to pursue our own ways. Sin that causes us to reject God. Sin that causes us to follow things that don't satisfy. Sin that causes our bodies to deteriorate. Sin that God hates. Because it speaks against him and it hurts the people that he loves the most. Sin that God hates and God wants destroyed. But God loves us. 
and to destroy the sin within us would destroy us. So the wrath of God and the love of God are held in tension. I love them so much, but the sin, the cup, has to be drunk. I love them so much, but I have to punish the sin. And so in comes Jesus. And wrath and love held in the heart of a good God prompts him to act. And the hour comes when God walks in a second garden. But this time, it's God who falls. And now it's God who will be punished and banished. And now it's God who dies so that you and I might have life. The hour and the cup have come to Jesus. And though he's shattered, he takes them. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he do that for people that rejected him? Why did he do that for you and I who weren't even born yet? Why did he do this? You come to the answer of that, you come to the answer of the greatest motivating reason to pray. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loves you so much. A father will do anything for a child he loves, and God certainly will do anything for a child he loves. God willingly takes the cup. God willingly faces the hour so that you and I don't have to. He loves you with this indescribable love. The God who calls you to pray to him is the God who acts like this, who swallows you in the ocean of his love, who loved you with his life, who loved you enough to take the punishment that you and I deserve. He loves you in the face of scorn. He faced the mocking. He faced the jeering. He faced the crowd spitting upon him. He hung upon a cross. He faced the judgment of man and the judgment of God so that you and I might have life in Jesus Christ. And you and I know the end of the story that that was not the end of Jesus Christ, that three days later he would rise rise in victory, conquering sin and death and Satan. And you and I, clothed in the righteousness of God, are now welcomed into the family of God. Is there a greater motivating reason to pray than this? That our God is so good and he loves you so much. If you understand this, loved ones, this drives prayer more than anything else in your life. Yeah, it's okay to pray to God because I need something so terribly and only he can do it. Yeah, it's okay to pray to God because I don't know the way out of this and I need his wisdom. But the greatest motivating reason to pray is because the one you're praying to loves you with this unstoppable love and calls you to come to him. Weed through the lies that God doesn't care for you and take hold of the hand of the one who has loved you with his entire life. But listen, a failure to pray in our lives is a failure to see the great love of Jesus in our lives. A failure to pray is a failure to see this love. Tim Keller commenting on these verses, he spoke of this love. He says this, that love, that love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of rightful wrath is the love you've been looking for all your life. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love. Nothing could possibly satisfy you like that. All those other kinds of loves will let you down. This one never will. When you understand the love of Christ, that drives us to pray. Jesus is saying to us this morning, Are you watching? Are you watching? 
So we've seen him model how to pray. We've seen the greatest example and the reason for us to pray. And now I want you to see this thirdly. This is our final point. Watch the warning for us to pray. Watch the warning for us to pray. And he, that's Jesus, verse 37, came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In the middle of the greatest agony of his life so far, just a stone throw away, Jesus returns to find his disciples, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, asleeping. And Jesus directs the question right to Peter in verse 37, even though I think he knows the answer. Verse 37, he says, are you sleeping? Just a moment of levity right here, moment of levity. You ever wake up somebody who denies that they were sleeping? <laughs> hey, did I catch you asleep? No, no, I wasn't sleeping. I picture this scene being like that. Peter, were you, were you sleeping? No, no, I wasn't sleeping. He asked the second question of him. Couldn't you watch for one hour? Literally in the question, there's that word strong again. You didn't have enough power in the battery to watch even for one hour? Now understand this, these aren't really questions. Jesus isn't really seeking answers here. They're gentle rebukes. And then we read in verse 38. Now, now, just before we get there, verse 37 is specifically directed to Peter. Uh, verse 38 is to all three of them. Uh, the, the, the verbs are all plural. We're talking to all of the guys now. And watch what he says in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now the charge to watch and pray is for all of them. Be alert and pray, or temptation is going to come and get you. Your spirit wants to pray, but your flesh doesn't. Now, what I find interesting in this, can you walk in the, just live in the text for a moment? What I find very interesting in this is that this is the moment of Jesus' greatest agony in his entire life. He's just poured his heart out before his father. He's just begged that the cup would pass from him. He's just clung to the sovereignty of God in the whole matter. And then he gets up, and he comes back, and he talks to the boys. You know how I've read this passage before? I've read this passage before where he gives a swift kick to the legs. Wakes up. What's wrong with you? You let me down. That's how I read it before. That's not how the passage is. When Jesus comes back, his concern for them is evident. Watch and pray, he says. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. I find this astonishing. Here is Jesus undergoing his greatest anguish ever. And then he comes back moments later and is concerned for these three young men. You need to pray. You need to stay awake. Trust me, temptation is coming to you guys like you have never seen before. And we know the story. We know the story. We know how Jesus responds. Jesus endures temptation. He suffers willingly upon the cross. He bears the wrath of God for our sins and the sins against the world. And then suffers and dies, declares it to be finished is buried, rises again in victory, conquering these amazing enemies of ours, now broken, defeated. Jesus endures the temptation. He did it. He faced it, and he did it. 
But the boys, not so much. Even in our story, we're not reading this part, but they fall asleep two more times. And then the guards come, and then the guards take Jesus by force. And Peter denies. In fact, in just a few verses later, in this passage, we read this in, in, in Mark, Mark 14, 50. And they all left him and fled. How about that for an Awana verse? Mark 14, 50, and they all left him and fled. But that right there is a highlighted verse in my Bible because that is what temptation wants to do to you every time. Temptation wants to drive you away from the one who has loved you so much and given his life for you and drive you out into the fields where you would suffer and die. And they all left him and fled. Your spirit wants to pray, but your flesh doesn't. You'll believe the lies. You'll believe the lies that I don't love you. You'll believe the lies that this isn't the best plan for us. You'll believe the lies that I don't care about you, that I don't know what's going on. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your spirit wants to pray, but your flesh doesn't. That's the warning Jesus gives him, and that's the warning Jesus gives all of us. So what do we do? As we face temptation in our lives every day, what do we do? Well, we believe that what Jesus says in these verses is true. Watch and pray. Recognize that my spirit wants to, but my flesh is weak. We call out to God. We admit our need for his help in our lives. I'll tell you what we don't do, though. If we want to grow in prayer in our lives to face the kind of temptation that we're going to face, I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't come up with a list of five things to do. Here's how I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get that resource. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. No, we said this over and over again in the series. The beginning of prayer is prayer. You can't do this apart from the Spirit of God at work in you. To pray, you need help to pray. I'll ask you this question. Is this going to be the only thing, prayer, is this going to be the only thing in the Christian life that you began by faith in, but you're now going to work out on your own ability? Is this, is, are you going to begin walking by him in faith and now all of a sudden master prayer all by yourself? Are you going to be the first one ever who will do this? Or are you going to ask the Spirit to help you? Are you going to beg that the Spirit of God work in you and change your heart to see prayer grow in great ways that we would pray like Jesus prays even in the midst of suffering that we would hold fast to the truth of why we pray we pray to a God who loves us like this and that we would be steadfast in prayer knowing that temptation is coming let me pray for us now God we know that the the series is ending, but I pray that this is the beginning of a long obedience for our church, of recognizing our weakness, our frailty, our inability to do anything, and crying out to you for grace and help to do everything. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change our hearts to make us broken men and women who are quick to acknowledge our need and who are even quicker to call out to this great God who has loved us so much. That we would cry out to you in prayer even in the darkest days. 
that we would hold fast to the truth that you love us so much. That we would face temptation in prayer. God, we thank you for the lessons that Jesus in his greatest moment of pain shows us.